This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, Cardinal fans. I'm Ozzie Smith. Smith, corks one into right down the line. It may go. And you're listening to the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. Here's your host. Brett McMillan. Welcome on into the Cardinals Insider Podcast for June the 12th. My name is Brett McMillan. Ed Wheatley is our guest today, talking about the history of a great but forgotten St. Louis ball player and his team. But before we get to that, I wanted to pause and remember another all-time great St. Louis ball player and a Cardinal that we lost last week. Red Shandings passed away on June the 6th at 95 years old a constant presence for the ball club. In fact, no one experienced as many eras of Cardinal baseball as Red did, from the great teams of the 40s when he was a player to these contemporary Cardinals and every era in between. Red wasn't just around, but he helped to shape most of those Redbird teams. We've heard so many great memories of Red's impact in recent days, and I wanted to bring you a little taste from three men who shared their memories either directly with Cardinals Insider or through our partners over at Fox Sports Midwest. Mike Matheny and Matt Carpenter both talked about Red's impact during this past spring training before he passed away, but it really just gives you a picture of, even in his 90s, what Red was bringing to the Cardinals. And then, of course, Bob Gibson reflected on his former manager, Red Shandings, during the 1968 50-year reunion back in May. Here are all three of those men and their thoughts in order. You know, one of my best evaluators I'm missing right now is my buddy Red, and amazing the stuff he'd pick up. And just randomly, whenever I'd kind of get out of my own way and stop and I'd find him, and he'd say, hey, did you see that kid? And what did you think about it? It's just the stuff that he's able to pick up. So actually, I... Fortunate. I got to talk to him on the phone again this morning, just kind of bouncing a couple things and asking him even what he's hearing, what he's seeing, what he's thinking, because it's um, it's that valuable. I can just remember a specific time, um, and it's happened on more than one occasion, where uh, he'll come up to me and 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 say something that he saw in a game, and it's just amazing. Two things: one, at his age, that he's still paying attention and he still notices things that that are happening, and then being able to put it into an applicable teaching point for a guy like me, and and for it to be right, like for me to be like, wow, you know, he's he's got a point, and uh, to me, that's amazing. Well, Red Shangney's, uh, I just loved him, still do. Uh, Red was 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 really a bright guy because he didn't try to manage us. He had a bunch of guys that knew how to play. And he would just sit back and watch. And when he had to make a move, he would do it. But uh, there, are, there are a lot of funny things I guess I, guess I guess can't talk about <laughs> as far as I was concerned. But uh, when I, I think about Red, I smile. I had the amazing privilege of interviewing Red. I haven't been with the ball club all that long, especially in comparison to him. And why I wouldn't try to tell you that I know him well or that he knew me, I can say that everything that you're hearing about him, I found those things to be true. 
He was gracious, he was warm, and he was filled with a love not just for the game, but for this organization. So there probably will never be another one quite like Red Chain Dienst. Turning our focus today, uh, as I mentioned at the top, there's a man whose statue you probably walk past, I don't know, dozens of times in your life, depending on how many games you come to, maybe dozens of times in a summer. And you probably haven't realized that he was never a Cardinal, and yet he does have a statue among the all-time Cardinal greats. George Sisler was an exceptional player for the St. Louis Browns from 1915 to 1927. He hit over 400 twice in that span, and he only hit less than 300 twice. Sisler and Cool Papa Bell have statues among the Cardinal greats out there at 8th and Clark, just kind of outside the team store. Neither one of them played for the organization, but they're both celebrated there because they really don't necessarily have a St. Louis baseball home otherwise. Bell was part of the Negro League team, the St. Louis Stars, And, of course, the Browns left for Baltimore to become the Orioles in 1953, and that basically rendered Sisler a sort of baseball orphan. The DeWitt family has a history with the St. Louis Browns. They try to keep that exceptional baseball legacy, the the ones that exist with the Browns, still up and going, and something that is, at least with hints here and there, still part of the St. Louis baseball consciousness. Today, our guest is Ed Wheatley of the St. Louis Browns Historical Society, We discuss Sisler and other topics surrounding the Brownies who were here for the better part of 50 years. But before we get to that, on Friday, June 29th, the Cardinals host the Braves, and that night, 30,000 fans, 16 and up, will take home their own one-of-a-kind Cardinals all-over print button-up shirt that is courtesy of the Shane Company. Get your tickets now at cardinals.com slash promotions. So here we go, digging deep on St. Louis baseball history. It's Ed Wheatley of the St. Louis Browns Historical Society on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. I had the chance to be at your luncheon this past year in uh, in 2017, and you guys had Don Larson, who actually pitched with the Browns. I didn't know that at all. And there's a lot of Browns fans. Uh, just tell us about that event a little bit, if you could. Well, this is um, our annual luncheon that we have for the St. Louis Browns. We uh, attract a, a, a lot of memories and a lot of participants. You know, there was a time we attracted a lot of former Browns, too, but slowly and unfortunately, uh, they're passing away. We're down to 12 players left of the 764 men who played for the Browns. But, yeah, you're right. Don Larson was a rookie with the Browns in 1953. He loved his time in St. Louis, but he went to Baltimore um, with with the move and then was traded to the Yankees, and that's where he gained his real fame and glory in the World Series of 1956 with the perfect game. But we also had Eddie Mickelson, uh, a local St. Louisan. Uh, many kids across St. Louis in the Parkway districts remember him as their guidance counselor and, and principal. He he was a first baseman with the Browns, but he also played first base with the Cardinals. He was one of the 66 men who played for both teams. Uh, so he was able to join us and, you know, full of stories. And also I had um, Whitey Herzog come because I want to do a tribute of two really great Browns who passed away in, in 2017, Ned Garver and Roy Sievers. And Whitey Herzog was just a natural because he uh, had played with Garver with the Athletics, and he played with Seavers with the uh, Centers. And it turned out, as we were having the, the luncheon discussion, it came out that 
uh, Whitey Herzog's first at bat was against Don Larson. So <laughs> it was this big triangulation of really cool events and stories. And when you get Don Larson telling stories, Eddie Mickelson and Whitey, it was just sit back and laugh. It was. I, Whitey got me rolling. He said, uh, he looked at Don, he goes, Don, we're just lucky to both be on this side of the grass. <laughs> yeah. that, that is so, so incredibly Whitey. Uh, that's the, the, the main thing that you guys do, that luncheon. And I would really right. encourage people to check it out. Right. And, 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 you know, we had uh, 250 people. I mean, it's just yeah. the vitality of the luncheon. The fan club is about 500 members nationwide. Uh, we're changing some things. And what we're going to do is, besides having an annual luncheon, we're going to have what we'll call a quarterly roundtable, where we pick a topic, have some key uh, discussion points. And it's going to be a two-way where a lot of people come with memorabilia to share and talk. It's kind of like, you know, they do these roundtables for Civil War or World War II, and it's like, well, why aren't we doing this with the Browns? And uh, the first one we're going to do is in January, January 20th, and we're doing it on George Sisler. I have some of his grandsons going to help participate, and we're going to put all this together uh, and just, you know, go back and live and talk baseball and its relationship with the Browns. And, you know, down the road uh, we've made contact with Rogers Hornsby's grandson, Satchel Page's daughter and, and son, to help us participate. So we just want to keep this memory alive because it's really upon us the St. Louis Browns Historical Society, a.k.a. Fan Club, as the, as the keepers of the Browns' memories. The, the Browns, unfortunately, are, are a, a, a team without ownership. Uh, Baltimore Orioles really um, don't want anything to do with the Browns. They've made it pretty clear to us as we've tried to reach out to them over the years. As we wrote this book this year, we tried to talk to them, and they said, well, you guys keep the memories. They believe Baltimore's franchise and memories began in 1954 or were part of the old American League team that existed in 1901 and 1902 that moved to New York that eventually became the Yankees and then in that void of 50 years before the Browns moved they were a very strong minor league team and that's where their memories are and you know some of it is the Browns um, you know they have a tainted image a little bit of those last couple of years under Bill Vec, you know, the Eddie Goodell incidents, the grandstand manager incidents. And people, they tend to, to remember that. And they don't remember the full 52-year history. And many of the great players are the, are the American League pennant team. And that's what our purpose is, is to keep that memory alive. Yeah, I know it's a history that's really dear to the DeWitts. Oh. Bill DeWitt Sr. was actually the GM in 1944 when the Cardinals and the Browns played in the World Series. So there are people that are interested in the history, and, and certainly you guys at the Historical Society are. But I think that a lot of people, when they look at it, go, you know, for 50-plus years now, it's been a one-team town. So how did you catch this bug to, to keep this history alive about the Browns? Well, I've always been, a, I guess I'd say, a baseball historian and, you know, supporting baseball and looking and a couple things really are I as I grew up and you know my dad played baseball and they had a big semi-pro existence in St. Louis in the 50s and 60s of guys who played professional ball and many of them were Browns and I got to know and remember a lot of these guys growing up and their stories about being a Brown and I got involved with the historical society and the luncheons and then wanted to get into deeper but as I started researching our book, it really became, you know, obvious this is a forgotten team, and these are forgotten players. You know, there's 15 men in the Hall of Fame that have ties to the Brown, and, you know, St. Louis, we're so proud of our Hall of Famers, the red coats, mm-hmm. jackets, you know, of all the ceremonies. Nobody's honoring these men, and there's some we'll talk about in a moment that are, you know, just such great players. And, you know, 
why not? What's going on? And if you look at the franchise, which really the Browns began in 1901 when the American League was formed in Milwaukee. They were in Milwaukee one year before Orthwine bought them and moved them to St. Louis in 1902. So they played from 1902 through the 53 season. And if you look at that franchise from Milwaukee to St. Louis to Baltimore, so much of the top offensive, batting, and pitching categories, who are the, like you say, who's the top 10 in each of these categories? They're dominated by Browns. I mean, who would think George Sisler still is the leading stolen base person on that franchise? George Sisler is still the leader in triples. And then, you know, you look at all the batting. It's just, it's like, it kind of became a little bit incensed. We got a story to tell. And we put this book together to tell the world more than just the people who come to our luncheons. And, you know, we've had tremendous success. It's it, People are coming out of the woodwork anyways. We have, you know, e- book events where we have a small talk about it, the book, and then questions. And um, people are coming. You know, we've, we'll fill a room with 300 people. You saw the vitality of the luncheon at, you know, two, over 250 people. And it's also like Antiques Roadshow. They come. They bring, here's my ticket from the 44 Wars series. You know, here's my... Brownie Brigade card that I had, I've carried in my wallet some in sixth grade, and the guy's in his 80s. The Brownie Brigade card was a lot like the knothole game for the Cardinals. It got the, the kids into the game after school when they played games every day in the afternoon. I mean, people are bringing balls. They're bringing scorecards. It's, we're waking up memories, but it's also these people are passing this down to their kids and their grandkids. And I don't know how many people would say, I wish my father was here for this because the Browns were his team. I mean, there was this back and forth, and you really start seeing it as you get into this rivalry between the Browns and the Cardinals. That you know, And that was really the, the whole story of the Browns' existence. Who would survive? You know, the Cardinals or the Browns? You had the same situation in Philadelphia with the Phillies and the Athletics and in Boston between the Braves and the Red Sox and, you know, a couple of other, these, these cities. And it was like, you know, the Browns were the great team to start off the first two decades. You know, the Cardinals had come into existence in 1892. The Browns didn't come to St. Louis until 18, excuse me, 1902. And from 1902 through the 20s, the Browns were the better team. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the town was a Browns town. But as you spoke about the DeWitts, there's another big character in this story, and it's Branch Rickey, who actually started with the Browns. And he was a player, a catcher. He was a general, ma- a manager, a general manager, an executive. And then he moved over to the Cardinals. But there's this whole story of who is going to control, you know. And there's a story of but how the Cardinals, the Robeson Field, got condemned. So they work. Dick, uh, Ricky works the deal with the Cardinals to move into with the Browns at Sportsman's Park because the Sportsman's Park was owned by the Browns in all those years. And you know he then takes that money. He saves from not having to maintain a stadium, and the money he gets from selling Robeson Field to the city um, school system and creates, that's where Beaumont High School is today. Mm-hmm. He takes that and he creates a farm system because Phillips DeCatsby Ball, the Browns owner, wouldn't let him spend the money to create the farm system. He creates the farm system, and then what do you have? The great Cardinals teams, you know, 26, 28, 30, 31, 34, 42, 43, 44, 46, you know. The Browns couldn't keep up. The tide switch. It's no longer a brown-colored city. It's a cardinal-red-color city. And, you know, that really shaped the history. 
so many, so many things. I mean, it, it's just um, this this battle. What if George Sisler would not have gotten hurt in September 12, 1922, the last two and a half weeks of the season? You know, you, you probably had that year one of the greatest performances of any baseball player in total history, and he lost out the last two and a half weeks, could barely play, but he hung in there. And the Browns lost to the Yankees by one game. What happens if the Browns would have won a World Series or gone to the World Series in 1922, four years before uh, the Cardinals? Would they have maintained the momentum? Would they have had the revenue from being a winner? So there's a, it's just this competition throughout. And, you know, people don't really remember that. They remember Bill Veck. He tried to buy and run the Cardinals out of town. There was strong belief the Cardinals would leave because Sam – I mean, Fred Sider, their president, was in trouble with the IRS and faced a potential jail sentence, you know. They didn't have a stadium. What if Bill Vec kicked them out of Sportsman's Park? Where would they go? The Browns could stay. Yeah, we'll get to that uh, in a little bit because you're right. That's an interesting time in Cardinal history where Vec buys the team and says, I want to drive the Cardinals out of town, which is hard to, like, fathom here yeah. in 2017, 2018. But it really happened, and, and uh, we'll touch on that in a moment. But I want to go back to what you said about George Sisler. Mm -hmm. And I don't think most people appreciate the greatness of Sisler. In fact, before I started working here, I didn't realize he's the only statue out front. Among all the Cardinal Hall of Famers, there also is George Sisler, and he definitely deserves that spot. He definitely deserves a spot, and, I, and you know, I can only – say how much we in the Browns appreciate the DeWitt family and the Cardinals for putting him there. There is no statue of George Sisler in Baltimore in Camden Yards. There's no statue of any Browns or honoring any Browns. And, you know, he was, you know, one of the greatest ball players of all time. I mean, he did, you know, legendary what he would do, especially in the 22 season with his, his high average, you know, Two times he hit over 400. You know, he hit 420 in 22. Six times he got over 200 hits. You know, go look at uh, the last year, 2016 <laughs> results, and see how many players could get 200 it's hits. A different game. It was a different game. I mean, you know, there were there was for the Browns of the 20s, two years in a row they had three men get over 200 hits. I mean, it was just a powerhouse of a team. It was a different ball game. You know, and it, the thing about George Sisler, he was a very humble, humble, quiet man. You know, he didn't have the the attributes of a Babe Ruth or a Ty Cobb, and he didn't get the press following in his day, even though, you know, we've we read um, from the Sisler family tributes that were made to him uh, during his time from Cobb and Ruth and some of the greatest players. And you know, he then gets overshadowed by those guys in the headlines. He gets overshadowed by Lou Gehrig in the Yankees. I mean, because Lou Gehrig was a much more power-hitting uh, player, but not the complete player like Sisler. And, you know, he's, as his, his family has told me, he's like the forgotten Hall of Famer as well. Right now is a really pertinent time to talk about George Sisler too because uh, we've got our exhibit across the street goodwill through baseball Cardinals across the Pacific and part of that is actually also about Brown's history because George Sisler held the American League record for hits in a single season until Ichiro Suzuki broke that and we've got bats over there from both of those gentlemen 
Brad Lefton, who's a St. Louis guy, worked a lot with Ichiro, helped out with the exhibit. Uh, that's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing over there, and that's a pretty cool connection. I know that Brad told me he took Ichiro to see George's grave during 2009, I believe, at the All-Star break when uh, when Ichiro was in town. Yeah, that's correct. That is correct. I mean, it's a it's an amazing feat, and there's a lot of parallels between that feat and Roger Maris's quest for Babe Ruth's home run record in 1961. You know, George Sisler hit 257 hits in, in uh, 1920. He um, hit 407 for an average, you know, and that record stood all the way till 2004. That was one of these ones, would it ever be broken, you know, kind of like, will DiMaggio's hit streak be broken? Will Gehrig's consecutive game streak be broken? Will Ruth's home run record be broken? And, you know, that was a time, too, as I spoke, you know, the, the difference between Roger Maris and, and um, Sisler and Ichiro was, again, people got to remember there was 154 games in the season. George Sisler played every inning of that, that season. When Ichiro was playing, there was it was 162. He played in 161 games. So he got 260 two hits versus the 257 hits. So he actually only got five more hits than Sisler. But, you know, he's recognized as the hit king, and that's fair because that's how baseball is doing it. But, it, you know, it's one of these iconic things where, you know, he had 70 more plate appearances, you know, and, and 73 more at-bats than Sisler and got just five more hits. I mean, it, it does tell you a little thing about how great Sisler was. And, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, people will say, well, you know, Aaron got – set the record for home runs over Ruth, but he got almost 2,000 more at-bats. I mean, it, that's just baseball, and that's just people trying to be controversial about whatever you know, Ichiro is, the hits leader. But it, is, it, is, it was a thing. Uh, I've talked to um, uh, Sisler's grandsons because his daughter and grandsons went up to Seattle for the game in which Ichiro broke the record, and they talked about how humble Ichiro was to the family and how – he really recognized and respected the man. And as you said correctly, that he said, I don't get to St. Louis very often, but the next time I get there, I want to go and visit his gravesite. And he did when he came here for the 2009 All-Star Game. Which is incredible. I think that's an incredibly classy thing to do. It, it was. I mean, it was an honor. I mean, you know, and you can take that. And I, and I always think of the tale of W.C. Fields, who um, George Susser went to see in Boston, and, you know, he had Sisler come backstage after a performance there at the Majestic Theater. And when Sisler came in, as we talked about during this thing, he was a very humble, a very quiet. you got to remember, he was an engineer. He graduated. This was at a time when a lot of people didn't go to college. He mm -hmm. graduated from Michigan as an engineer. He was a very smart man and a very straightforward man. And W.C. Field offered him a drink, and he says, Mr. Fields, I don't drink. He goes, something to the point of, Oh, the the perfect ball player isn't so perfect. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, I think that kind of sums it with the respect of Ichiro, the respect of how, you know, using W.C. Fields as an example of the respect George Sisler had. But the problem is George Sisler never had the headlines of a wild, gregarious guy like Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb or all the roaring 20s. Um, he sat quietly and just did his job. And, you know, even though he was named 
um, you know, handsome George, uh, he just was quiet. And then as he proceeded through all this transition, as we spoke with, with Branch Rickey and, you know, the Dodgers and the Pirates, he's never had a team other than the St. Louis Cardinals really recognize his greatness. He's the greatest. I, I was reading his Sabre bio just to kind of, that's Society of American Baseball mm-hmm. Research, for those who don't know, uh, just to kind of freshen up before we did this. And the thought went through my head. He is probably the greatest athlete that no one's ever heard of outside of St. Louis. I mean, it, it's not hyperbole. Nine straight seasons hitting 300 or better, a 340 hitter. And the stat that really stands out to me is there's two guys in AL history that have hit 400 or better twice, Sisler and Ty Cobb. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows Cobb. But nobody knows George. No, no. And, you know, in, in 1922, you had Hornsby hit 401, and you had uh, Sisler hit 420. So here in St. Louis, you had two 400 <laughs> hitters playing in the same ballpark on two different teams. Yeah, not just the same city, the, the same field yeah. at one time. And as I mentioned, people should check it out, too. I, I was oblivious. I grew up here, big Cardinal fan. I never realized that there was a Sisler statue out front. And there's some stuff across the way with our museum, Correct. too. They, they do a great job, uh, Paul Homan, Brian Finch, and company, keeping alive the history of the Browns over there. They have their own display, and, and George is a part of that. And he should be. Uh, I know it's important to the DeWitt family that the Browns be kept alive here in St. Louis. And a big part of that is Sisler. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize that he went on to do a lot of things that were kind of integral in baseball after he retired. Oh, absolutely. Too. He's like Forrest Gump in the baseball oh. world. You talk about the names he touched. Well, you know, f- you first start off with George Sisler. He grew up in Ohio is where he was born. He went to the University of Michigan. That's where he came uh, in contact with a coach, Branch Rickey. Yeah. And then Branch Rickey, Small you know, world. comes to St. Louis, brings George Sisler. And, you know, some of the stuff you can't make up. Everybody knows Babe Ruth. He was signed um, – from the Baltimore Orioles of the minor league club up to the Yankees as a pitcher. Well, guess what? George Sisler was a pitcher at Michigan. He comes to St. Louis as a pitcher and actually defeats Walter Johnson two times. And he then, you know, just like Ruth, he hits too, too, too good to be a pitcher. So he gets put into a position at first base and becomes one of the best fielding first basemen of all time. And, you know, he is Branch Rickey becomes his mentor, his protege. And, you know, he has this great 15-year career. The one thing that, you know, I think a lot of people also don't realize it, you know, he had this great 1922 season where he hit 420, you know, again, over 200 hits. But that following January, in January 1923, he got an extensive cold that led to a tremendous sinus affection which caused him to have blurred vision, and it really impacted his eyes, and he actually sat out the 1923 season. And it did impact the rest of his career, and he just became a 300 hitter, not a 400 hitter. <laughs> but he then continued after baseball with, with uh, Branch Rickey. And one of the things he was very instrumental in doing uh, for Mr. Rickey was watching Jackie Robinson. Yeah, and I had no idea until I read that the other day. Right. He, you know, his son, his grandsons have told me about how his whole job was to watch Jackie Robinson as he played with the Montreal Royals and through the minor leagues and make the call to Branch Rickey. He's ready. Um, And he, um, 
Um, made the decision and on April 15, 1947. Jackie Robinson made his debut in the major leagues, but George Sisler was an integral part of that. And when, when Ricky left uh, the Dodgers and went to um, the Pittsburgh Pirates, he took George Sisler with him, and he then mentored Roberto Clemente. Helped him and, keep his head still. Helped him keep the head still, changed his bat and, and everything. And so, I mean, he was – you know, very instrumental in that. And one of the other key kind of sidelight stories was in 1950 the, with the Philadelphia Whiz Kids, who, Phillies, who, who, who won the pennant. It was his, George Sisler's son, Dick, who hit the big home run that kept the Dodgers out of, out of, the, uh, out of the pennant that year. So, I mean, there's a continuity. Two of his sons did play uh, professional baseball. Yeah, Dave and Dave and Dave Dick. And Dick, yes. Dick's the one people probably know more, but Dave, I think, played six or seven years right. in, in the big leagues, too. It just It's amazing to me how one guy, and he's still buried here in, in St. Louis. Uh, in De Pere. Yeah, that's where they laid him down, which I think is kind of cool. It became his adopted hometown, and mm-hmm. that's where he rests to today. But this great career, and people who are really into baseball history know it, but then here he is in the background like we talked about with Jackie Robinson, with Clemente. He actually threw a no-hitter. This was in, like, I guess, independent ball in Akron, mm-hmm. where he was from. And Cy Young was the home plate umpire. This is in, <laughs> right. this is in the teens. <laughs> right. But just you, you think about those three names alone, and then you throw on top of it what Sisler did as a player here in St. Louis. Uh, that's a remarkable baseball life. Oh, it is. I mean, you know, and that's, that's the thing about as you read this history of the Browns and you live it, you know, the, the touch points of Branch Rickey or George Sisler, you know, Bill DeWitt. You spoke about Bill DeWitt was the longtime general manager and executive. There was a period in the late 40s he and his brother Charlie actually owned the Browns. Mm-hmm. They actually bought the Browns before Bill Vec came to town. Um, and, you know, then you have Vec. I mean, there's just so many, many stories. There's a story people don't realize. Dizzy Dean actually played for the Browns. Yeah. And people go, you're crazy. Broadcast for him, too. He, he, and that was the whole point. He was a broadcaster six years out of the mi- major leagues. You know, Dizzy was not a homer when he, when he called a game. You know, he didn't use always the best English, and in the in his St. Louis City school teachers were out to get him off the air because, you know, he had great comments like he slud in the third and the kids would try to emulate him in school. But uh, he told it like it was and said, you know, this pitcher can't hit the side of the barn. I can do better. All of these things. And, you know, they basically called his bluff. And so on the last day of the season in 1947, they signed him to a one-day contract. He came out. He was cruising through four innings of shutout ball. You remember, he hadn't played in the majors in six <laughs> years. He actually hit a single and was stretching it into a double and slid kind of funny into second base, and his back tightened up, and he came out of the game. Otherwise, he said he completed the game, you know, um, and thrown a shutout. But, that, I mean, there's just these stories you can't make up. Yeah, there is. And, and that's the, to me, is I've read more and learned more about the Browns over the years. I think that what they always led in, you know, we're, we're proud of our history with the Cardinals, the Branch Rickey factor, the farm system, how we've led on the field in so many different areas. But I think that from – promotion and the the business of putting people in the stands I don't know from whistle to whistle so to speak if there's been a franchise that's influenced baseball as much as the Browns did you talked about Bill Veck and some of the things that he did I'm sure the other owners didn't like it but they drew history to those points and you talk about uh, Dizzy Dean there and, and the things that he did and then there's also that famous moment with Eddie Goodell in the 1950s uh What's your favorite thing, I guess, a guy who's learned about the Browns, the favorite thing that they pioneered within the business of baseball 
outside of what happens on the field? I think there's really two two things that they were real pioneers in before they're ahead of their time. And there's some of it was under VEC, some of it was pre-VEC. You know, there was a period in the late 40s and early 50s, they went high into televising games when other um, teams were not. UHF, you, know, you always, when you give a talk around, you always said, who remembers UHF? was ultra-high frequency <laughs> TVs, um, stations. You know, back in, I guess it was the late 60s, early 70s, Channel 30 was one of the last UHF stations here in St. Louis. But they, they started recognizing there was more money from advertising than people putting, um, sitting in the seats. And as people weren't coming to the game, people were watching it on TV way, way ahead of time. The other thing that people don't really recognize and give the Browns credit and foresight for, and it was a lot uh, Bill DeWitt Sr., uh, who was an executive with the Browns. Um, what they did was, you, as we spoke earlier, Jackie Robinson made his um, day in, in baseball in, on April 15, 1947, becoming the first Afro-American to, to play Major League Baseball. And then it was July 5th. 1947, when Larry Doby came in and became the first Afro-American in the American League. Well, a few days later, the Browns put Hank Thompson on the field. And Hank Thompson, by the way, will be uh, the lone guy who also becomes the first New York Giant several years later. So he integrated two teams in baseball. But a couple days after Hank um, Thompson made his debut on July 17th, Willard Brown, a big slugger from the Kansas City Monarchs, joined him in the outfield. So it was the Browns were the first team in baseball to have two Afro-American players playing on the field at the same time. I mean, it was seven years before the Cardinals would have Tom Alston. And it would be 12 years, in ni- late 1959, before the Boston Red Sox finally put Pumpsy Green on the field. But they had a vision trying to draw fans into the stands and interest in the Browns. Um, The ownership of the Browns felt we had this untapped segment of the community, the Afro-American part of of town, and if we put more players on the field, you know, one, they were good players, it would help the the team, but it would also draw more fans. So, you know, I think those two things were kind of like, you know, in a way the Browns were kind of like Charlie Finley in the 70s and all the things he was trying. Well, they were doing it in the 40s, uh, but a little ahead of their time in baseball. Uh, You mentioned that they were trying to put people in the stands. A lot of the time, because that was a a tough road to hoe with the way that the Cardinals got going the 20s through the 40s. I mean, that's a behemoth they were trying to take on. But in 1944, I've read before that Musial would look up in the stands when it was the streetcar series. Uh Cardinals, Browns, one ballpark for all the games. And I think that even though it maybe was a Cardinal town at that point, that oh. all the people wanted to kind of see the underdog win. Oh, yeah. He, we, we talk about that in our book and find the quotes in, in uh, on tape and in newspapers. Musial was amazed. He said, look, we were just in the World Series in 42 and 43, and we're in the, in the World Series against the Browns, and we're the underdogs. Everybody's rooting for the Browns. And I think that was a, ta- a cap tip to the Browns, oh. not a knock on the Cardinal fans no. who, who've always been great and still are, but <laughs> I think that says a lot about how much St. Louis wanted to see it work they, for the Browns. I, I think you're absolutely right. They wanted to see. I mean, the Browns were a little bit of mishaps all their their later years in the, you know, the 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, they had this 
group, you know, all the big stars were gone in, in, in the war in the 43, 44. The Cardinals stayed pretty much intact. They didn't really lose any of their big stars to the war, you know, like DiMaggio and Bob Feller and, you know, all the big st- stars across. Um, and it was just this feeling, you know, here we go. The Browns finally get something. And they get a little asterisk, like it's the war years. You know, we didn't have all these great players. And, you know, the Cardinals, as I said, they kept their core from the 42 and 43 uh, teams and pennants there as they came into 44. So there was this, this diehard. But you know what? As you speak, and as we find that we have really hit a nerve and people just coming out as I spoke to, to these events or are talking to us, is that, there was this loyalty to the Browns even in the far, late 40s and 50s when they were losers. And, you know, people still to this day hold Bill Veck into contempt for moving <laughs> the team, uh, much like they do in Brooklyn and in and, and New York uh, when Horace Stone moved the Giants, you know. But there was a loyalty, and it was could the Browns do it? And, you know, there's a lot of what ifs. I spoke what if in 1922 if George Sisler hadn't gotten hurt in late September. You know, would they have beaten the Yankees? You know, the Browns won the first game. You know, uh, Mort Walker, <laughs> he gives up two hits, but the Browns win the game. The second game, the Browns look like they're on their way to win. Nels Potter fumbles a bunt uh, by, by the pitcher. Max Lanier throws it into the uh, right field corner. Cardinals come back, tie it. Eventually, the Cardinals win in 11 innings. And then the Browns win the next day. So it's always like, what if Nels Potter had thrown the out? The Browns would have been up three games. What if the Browns had won the 44 World Series? Would that have done some turning and changing? You know, would they have gotten revenue? Because money and revenue was always the issue with the Browns. We talk about some really great players. You know, good example, Vern Stevens was in the World Series. The hero to a lot of St. Louisans. Sharsa leads the league in home runs in, in, in 1945, but then they trade him because they needed money. So they were in this situation. They would develop good players and trade them off. And, you know, too often in the history of baseball, we've seen situations like that. And that kind of situation is what led to Bill Veck being able to buy the team in 1951. We mentioned it a little bit ago. He vowed he was going to run the Cardinals out of St. Louis. The Cardinals were tremendously popular, but their owner, Fred Sy, did fall on some hard times, was going to have to sell the team. It looked like the Cardinals might move to Texas and that Veck might actually come up with a, a promise that he fulfilled in getting the Cardinals to leave, but then uh, Anheuser-Busch swoops in, and, and that was a big game changer for the Browns. Well, it was. I mean, and when you look at Bill Veck, there are mixed emotions, and that's why it kind of kind of pause a minute to say it correctly. Yeah, you know, in one sense, he's this guy that people would perceive as a a, a bad guy to baseball. You know, you got to remember Bill Veck had the Indians in 1948 and they went to the World Series. You know, um, he then has to sell that team due to some personal issues and he sees the the Cardinals as this plum of a, of a, of a opportunity. You know, the Cardinals ownership is in trouble. They don't have a stadium. So I will go and I will go there. He doesn't have quite the players on the Browns bench to really be winners. So what he did was a lot of little antics to bring people into the stands because if I can't entertain them with a winning team, I'm still going to entertain them. And that's what, you know, these antics 
uh, that we'll speak about in a moment got the other owners upset. But I will also tell you, he was one of the most gracious men. He was the biggest salesman. I call him the kind of P.T. Barnum of baseball in the book. But besides these circus acts he would come up with, every child who was born in St. Louis during the Vec years got a letter with tickets wow. <laughs> to come to a, a Browns game. It's an invitation. It's, it's this letter comes to these these kids as they're born at the hospital with a little poem written and signed by Bill Vec personally to come to a Cardinals game and bring their parents. You know, and any if there was a boy born, he also got a contract to try out for spring training in 18 years. Huh. So I mean, he went out of his way. He would go to taverns and local clubs all across the city promoting the Browns. He tried everything he could do. You know, he would sit in the stands and walk around the stands. Remember he had um, he was on crutches at the time because of his, his leg and he would sit with people. He would buy him soda. He would buy him popcorn. He went out of his way to look. He actually lived in Sportsman's Park. He was so committed, he created an apartment for his whole family. His whole family lived in Sportsman's Park. He was working 20-hour days. Yes, he was. And that's why I said it's, it's really with mixed emotions in how you describe Vec. But it really came down to the team just wasn't that good. And the Cardinals were coming off this long three-decade run of really good results. And he, he, he tried. Well, as I said, he couldn't win with the players necessarily and get people to come. But they could come see circus acts. And I call it, there was actual times there would be acrobats out there. There would be animals and clowns before and after games. And he also did the incidents of, um, like Eddie Goodell, three-foot-seven-inch ball player, you know, put him out there, publicity stunt, um, got the ire of the rest of the National League. Um, you know, this little guy playing and kind of, what do you do? What do you do? Well, it was a great photo op. You know, Major League Baseball was so upset, the commissioner said it doesn't go in the, in the, in the record books. So when you look at the 1952 results, you see nothing about Eddie Goodell in 1951. He later subsequently changed that because then what does that do to the rest of the game and the rest of the players' mm-hmm. results? And it was restored. And you'll see Eddie Goodell, uh, one plate appearance, you know, and you know a walk and and that was it uh and he did that is this big promotion you know the whole story um of how it was a double header it was in 1951 it was the 50th anniversary of the formation of the american league it was the 50th anniversary of grisa dick beer and he promised cake and ice cream to everybody and he rolls out this big cake between games of the double header against the detroit tigers and a lot of people thought some bathing beauty or something was going to pop out of this cake. Instead, this little three-foot, seven-inch guy pops out. And then, you know, he comes into the game to pinch hit for George Saucier. And, you know, Bob Kane, the Detroit Tigers pitcher, and, and, and Bob Swift, the Detroit Tiger catcher, they don't know how to pitch to him. And you know, the Tiger manager's running out saying, this is no good, and Zach Taylor... The Browns manager comes out with the contract and shows the umpire, and the umpire says, play ball. So Kane and Swift got to figure out, how do I pitch to this guy, you know? Kane wanted to throw underhand. The umpire wouldn't let him, and and Swift wanted to get down on his knees and almost lay down on his belly because, again, the batter's three foot seven inch, not, you know, six foot something. And he finally walks on four pitches, goes down to first base, um, and then Jim Delsing runs for him, pats Jim Delsing on the butt and goes into the – Dug out in the locker room into immortality. And then, unfortunately, 
he got into a brawl in a Chicago bar several years later and, and died as a result of, of, of that fight. Uh, so it was a sad life for Eddie Goodell, but a, a, probably a low point for baseball and the Browns. And then five days later, Vec followed that incident up with grandstand manager night mm-hmm. where he had a section of the ballpark where the, player, the, the fans got a card that said yes or no. And they were told to make the decisions. And Zach Taylor, the Browns manager, sat on the roof of the dugout in a rocking chair. And there was a man on the field just to the side of the dugout who would raise with questions. And then the fans would say yes or no. And they were playing the Philadelphia Athletics. And they kept an eye on things over there. And probably the best story was Hank Arf. Hank Arf is a local St. Louisan. His family and he ran Schrader Funeral Home for many years after he quit playing baseball out in, in Baldwin. He was a big lumberjack type of first baseman that was prominent in the 40s and 50s. Big home run power hitter, big muscle, very, very slow at a <laughs> foot. Well, Hank walks, so immediately the sign goes up. Should he steal? You know, people being people, they all <laughs> said yes. You know, the athletics are looking at it. He's going to steal, you know. So Hank is thrown out by 25 feet. <laughs> and, you know, it was all these things that started getting on the nerves because it was taking away from, from pure baseball. And it was actually led to the major leagues forcing Bill Veck to sell the Browns. You know, he was trying to move them, but because of his annex, the owners turned on him and, and forced him uh, to, to sell. But then again, he goes uh, and buys the Chicago White Sox in 59. He takes them to the World Series, and then, you know, he continues to keep them in, you know, his incidents, you know, his infamous disco night in Chicago or the n- day he put shorts on the on the Chicago White Sox and they play the game in shorts. Which is, if you've never seen footage of it, people need to YouTube that because it is, uh, we'll say it's the most interesting look in baseball history, we'll, we'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was just, he was trying to produce winners, and he did. He did produce winners in Cleveland. He did produce winners in Chicago. But in St. Louis, he just didn't have the time. And it was also once Augie Bush decided, I can sell a lot of beer by owning a baseball team, no one was going to compete with Augie Bush. And, you know, it was the, the nails were in the coffin. The Browns are out. St. Louis has won this battle that had been raging since 1902 on who was going to survive baseball in St. Louis. To me, and this is just my opinion, but when I look at Goodell and everything that happened, I think that before then the Cardinals and the Browns, the relationship had been rivalry, including that 44 World Series. Respect, but rivalry. And at that moment, I think is the point where there's kind of this coming together of baseball history because Bill DeWitt Jr., who is our uh, our chairman and CEO of the St. Louis Cardinals, was the bat boy. His Mm -hmm. dad was was in the front office, and it's actually his uniform that they stitch a one-eighth on the back of and give to Eddie Goodell. And I know that that's really important to Bill. In fact, it's across the street at Ballpark Village on display, the actual uniform. And I think that, to me, that moment is significant because that's the moment where I think that the, the DeWitt family's legacy is cemented with that franchise, and clearly now they're a huge part of Cardinal history. And because they see it as important, I think the Browns get to live on here, in, in addition to the work that you all are doing. So 
to me, that's a, a huge, huge moment in, in St. Louis baseball history. Well, I think it, it, it totally is. And, I, you know, first thing I always do whenever I'm giving a talk or, you know, even in the book, we recognize the contributions of the DeWitt family. You know, we tell the stories about Bill DeWitt Sr. throughout, but Bill DeWitt Jr., as you said, that, that uniform was, was his that Edgar Doe wore. And, you know, he and Bill DeWitt III, both have been strong um, partners and members of the Browns Historical Society. They took that jersey out of the Hall of Fame and photographed it for us so it could be in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and they, like I said, they are, are, are very, very strong supporters. And also one of the most iconic pictures in, in St. Louis local sports history is a picture of Bill DeWitt Jr. with Babe Ruth. Mm-hmm. In 1948, Babe Ruth came to St. Louis um, just as he was starting to get sick, and he, there's this iconic photo of the babe in a, in a suit with wingtip black and white shoes showing um, little Bill DeWitt Jr. how to hold a bat, and the, the eyes of Bill DeWitt Jr. looking up at Babe Ruth. Are just, it's just it's a really cool photo, and you know, it's just a part of this long history of baseball. Um, memories in St. Louis but I mean there's just so many strong ties from the DeWitt family to the Browns and and the Cardinals and it's just kind of like this joint thing and you know like I said they are great great partners both um, Bill DeWitt Jr. Bill DeWitt III are members of our historical society Um, they participate at our luncheons and uh, you know when we need some help or this or that they're the first you know to be there and I can't tell you you know, how great the Cardinals have been. You know, it would be nice if the Cardinals had the franchise of the Browns instead of the Orioles, you know, because I think there's so many other men um, who who deserve recognition that aren't recognized in baseball simply because they were a St. Louis Brown. You know, you go down, you go to Los Angeles. They remember all the good times in Brooklyn. They remember and honor Jackie Robinson, you know, Don Newcomb, uh, Jim Gilliam, Jackie Robinson, I think I said a minute ago, you know, all these players who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, Atlanta honors all the home runs and the time Hank Aaron spent in Milwaukee. And the same with Warren Spahn, you know, his time in Milwaukee and even in Boston. Uh, And, you know, Oakland Athletics, they recognize all the pennants won by Connie Mack in Philadelphia. But you go to Baltimore, there's nothing. And it is the DeWitts who do help keep our flag aloft. Uh, as the St. Louis Browns. I think that's the thing that as people listen to this, whether they knew a lot about the Browns coming in or not, that's the the takeaway for me that I hope people take is this. I I had this conversation with Brian Finch, who's the manager of the Cardinal Museum and the tours here, and he made a point I'd never had thought of, but I, I think that as much as the Cardinals played a role in the baseball fervor of this city, the Browns are responsible just as much, and here's why. If you think about it as, let's say, a kid in the 40s, 10, 11 years old, one ballpark, two teams. So obviously when the Cardinals are home, the Browns are on the road and vice versa. There was a game legitimately every day of the summer if you're a kid growing up in St. Louis. And that really, I think, spawned the love of baseball regardless of the team, and now it's all placed on the Cardinals, which we're proud of, and and we, I know I'm biased, but we think we are the greatest baseball city in America. And I think that without the Browns, you know, it wasn't just the Cardinals who did the heavy lifting. I think that the Browns have a lot to do with the baseball culture of this region. Oh, think about it. I mean, you you know, a kid in Cincinnati who just had the Reds, 
Could you go see Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig come to town, yeah, Jimmy Fox, Ty Cobb? Yeah. You saw the greatest players in Major League Baseball because they were either playing against the Cardinals or the Browns. And, you know, it, it, that, I think, just what you said, because Brian and I have talked about this multiple times. I mean, you had them all here. I mean, think about it. Sportsman's Park every day, all these other cities that had two teams – generally played in separate stadiums. There was a few years and times they would share for one reason or the other. It was every day there was a game here. I mean, more games played in Sportsman's Park at, at a time than any other place in the United States. Um, and it was, it was special that, you know, here come the Yankees. Here comes Bob Feller and his Indians, you know, Jimmy Fox, Eddie Collins, all these American League players. They played here, and you could see them. You got your pick of who you wanted to see, um, and it, it was, it it was, I think, probably the key event that made St. Louis a great team. And you know, one kind of quick, funny story is like in the 1944 season, Billy Southworth was the was the Cardinal manager. Luke Sewell was the Browns manager. They shared an apartment because one of them was <laughs> always home and one of them was always on the road. And then all of a sudden, they got to play each other in the World Series, and I was like. Well, who's going to stay in the apartment when their wives come, you know? Uh, so it was, it, there were little funny stories just like that. And the other thing, too, just not, not to belabor, but we said there were 66 men who played for the Cardinals and Browns together. Generally, their good years were with the Cardinals, and as they transitioned uh, into later of their tenure, they moved to the Browns, like, you know, Rogers Hornsby, Jim Bottomley. You know, we can go on with the list. But um, so you had this affection for some players – as Cardinals, and then you had that continued affection for those same players as a Brown. So it, it helped with the tradition. It's a, a great baseball history. I would encourage people to check out your all's website, stlbrowns.com. They can learn more about how to become part of the fan club, attend the events, and also uh, get some info on the book, yes. I believe, is too. Where, where can they buy the book? St. Louis Browns, the story of a beloved team if they want to pick it up. It, it's available online, you know, at any of the online shops, Amazon, you know, Google Books. You can get it at Costco online, Target online, B. Dalton online, or you can get them in the big box stores and, 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 and shops themselves. It's It's been carried across the, the community and actually across the country, and it's, it's doing very well. I mean, I think we hit the right nerve. The book is a, is a coffee table type book, and that's what I really wanted, not just to be all words and stories. I wanted people to go back in time through pictures and see the different players, to see the different events. And a lot of times I wanted to see the different advertising because that's part of the cool. You look at Sportsman's Park and all the different advertising on the wall, and you know you don't get how many people start talking about, I remember Hyde Park Beer or City Ice or Jim Blades or, you know, the different signs, how many people like to talk about the different signs. And so I was really careful in the pictures that we took and put into the book, as well as the story. There's about 300 little vignettes and about 700 photos of memorabilia. Sometimes it's the picture of a Dizzy Dean signed ball, you know, a Roger Hornsby signed ball, or a ticket stub to this game or scorecard, but lots of picture of action. So we wanted to, to relive the era of the Browns, and that's really not there's no book like it. And we wanted to tell stories. I mean, we've talked about a few stories here. There was a time in 1941 that Bill DeWitt Sr. had worked out a situation with this battle of the St. Louis two teams. The Browns were moving to Los Angeles. In 1941, they were going to move 
you know, again, talk about ahead of their time. To beat know, the Dodgers West, They yeah. were going to beat the Dodgers and the Giants West. They had it all worked out, the travel between airplanes and, and railroad. It was all agreed on by the American League ownership. The unfortunate thing was, and there's so many unfortunate things with the Browns, is on they were going to have the American League meetings were going to take place and approve it and put it into place on December 8, 1941. The day before, Pearl Harbor Day, put it all on hold and changed everything. So what if the Browns had moved for the 42 season to Los Angeles? Would they have thrived? Would they still be the Browns today? You know, who knows, but it's a lovely what if. Ed, thanks for your time. Uh, appreciated yeah. it. Really encourage people to check out the book and the Browns memorabilia across the street at the Cardinals Hall of Fame Museum. Thanks for stopping by today. Thanks. Ed is also releasing a Cardinals-themed children's book that centers on the idea of what if the people on the left field wall at Bush Stadium, the Cardinals' greats, stepped off that wall when they were all alive. We'll have a TV piece on that the weekend of June the 23rd and 24th. Check out the station that carries Cardinals Insider on the TV side in your area. We've run, I think, 17 different stations across uh, eight or nine states, plus Fox Sports Midwest and the Fox Sports Go app. So plenty of chances to watch. Go to cardinals.com slash insider for your local listings. Hey, you don't want to miss Bob Costas night at Bush Stadium on Monday, June the 25th. Fans that purchase a special theme ticket receive an exclusive Bob Costas bobblehead that will honor his induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Get your Bob Costas night tickets today at cardinals.com slash theme. Next week, Kurt Warner joins the program. He was in town for Kurt Warner night at the ballpark a few weeks back. Had the pleasure to spend a couple minutes with Kurt just talking about St. Louis, why it is that he's still, honestly, a, a constant part of this community, even with pro football gone now for a couple of years. That episode releases next Tuesday. That is June the 19th. If you've missed an episode, you want to go back and listen, check us out on iTunes or cardinals.com slash podcast. Mike Matheny, Chris Carpenter, some of the 1968 National League champion Cardinals, Ben Hockman, Brian Jordan, Dan McLaughlin, all of those names and more have been a part of the program at one point or another this year. And of course, I always love hearing from you. Shoot me a note via email, podcast with an S at cardinals.com. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks to Ed Wheatley for his time. It was fun to talk Browns and St. Louis baseball history with him. Until next week, I'm Brett McMillan. We'll catch you next time on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.